You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I don't know who Kristen is or why Kristen's tweet kept landing in my timeline this weekend, but late Friday night, Kristen took to Twitter because she had something to say about sex. Sex was created by God, Kristen tweeted, for marriage between a husband and wife, not for a boyfriend and girlfriend that are dating. Kristen's tweet got noticed, not unsurprisingly, I suppose, seeing as Kristen, at living for jc has 41,000 followers. Interestingly, I don't follow anyone Kristen does, and I'm guessing she doesn't follow anyone I do. And yet, there she was in my timeline, again and again, because that tweet got noticed and ratioed, as the kids say, more responses than retweets. A lot of people took to Twitter to argue with Kristen, and I apparently follow a lot of those people who wanted to argue with Kristen this weekend. And why wouldn't people want to argue with Kristen? I want to argue with Kristen. I am arguing with Kristen right now, or arguing at Kristen right now, because her argument, because her tweet is so goddamn risible or risable. I can never remember how to say that word. Risible like the whizable or risable like rise from the deadable. Anyway, Kristen's tweet. Sex was created by God for marriage between a husband and wife, not for a boyfriend and girlfriend that are dating. Okay, sure. Whatever. Kristen is free to believe that. And she's not alone. A lot of people believe that. But they're wrong. Sexual reproduction is anywhere from 500 million to a billion or more years old. And we're not the only ones who do it. Birds do it, bees do it, educated fleas, actually all fleas, fleas that haven't made it or are only capable of laying unfertile eggs. Fish fuck amphibians, clams, cows, ferns, flowering plants, apple trees, poodles, fungi, bacteria, Donald Trump's children and other lower forms of life all reproduce sexually. Set aside all the fucking we humans do outside of marriage and all the boys out there fucking the nice boys they're dating there's just a whole lot of fucking going on out there, outside of our species. Homo sapiens, that's us, only appeared or evolved 200 to 300,000 years ago. And even if the first Homo sapiens immediately started having bridal showers and bachelor parties, which to their credit, they did not, but even if they did, even if marriage was invented at the same time we were, which it wasn't, why is everything else that walks, crawls, flies, or releases spores into the wind having sex if sex was invented by God for the exclusive use of husbands and wives? Incidentally, releasing spores into the wind, that's the only way White House policy advisor Stephen Miller can reproduce sexually. It's the reason all women who work at the White House are so careful to stand upwind of Miller at Rose Garden ceremonies. Anyway, here's the reason people like Kristen are so freaked out about sex. It isn't that God invented sex and some of us are misusing his invention. That's not what scares her. What scares her, what scares a lot of people is the fact that sex, sexual reproduction, sexual selection, natural selection, kid brother, spontaneous mutation, it invented us. Sex created us. And the randomness of it, all that mating and selecting, it's really terrifying to contemplate. A few different mutations here and there over those hundreds of millions of years, maybe one or two fewer asteroid strikes, and we wouldn't exist. 
the howling void from which we emerged and to which we are destined to return. And judging from the news, the howling void, we seem to be in a big hurry to return ourselves to. Thinking about all that shit can break your brain. It's breaking my brain right now. So it's more comforting to think that this powerful thing that created us, sexual reproduction, was instead created for us. And that this creative force, this really powerful chaos agent, could be brought under control if only we could control ourselves. I scrolled through Kristen's timeline long enough to glean that sex was a destructive force in her life, sex and violence. And hey, if her belief system helped Kristen get away from shitty people and make choices that made her feel better about herself, I am happy for Kristen. Honestly, whatever gets you through the night, Kristen. But the reason we need to argue with all the Kristens out there is because they don't just want to control themselves. They want to control you and what gets you through the night. And for most of human history, they could and they did. And they'd very much like to again. All right, before we begin the show, a quick correction. At the top of last week's show, I said Ilhan Omar, the member of Congress from Minnesota's 5th Congressional District and the focus of hateful racist attacks from our hateful racist president, was born in Sudan. Omar was actually born in Somalia. Thank you to everyone who wrote in to correct me. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more guests, more questions, no ads. I chat with Kara Dunkley, sex researcher at the University of British Columbia, about her recent paper looking at how pain is experienced as pleasure when deployed in a BDSM context. All that coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan, 33-year-old female living on the West Coast. Um, I've been dating a guy for about four months. We're both married, poly, and have kids. He's trans, and I identify as pansexual. I've never been with a trans guy before, and he's never been with a woman, so there's lots of first times for both of us. It's been a really fun relationship, uh, really good sex, great conversation. We connect intellectually. I mean, the sex is amazing. The problem is he wrote a blog post a few days ago about how despite the great sex and the connection, he feels like we're just not clicking and that it feels like it's a burden to hang out with me sometimes. I really don't know what to do with this information. He's never said anything like that to me before, although he has canceled plans, but he always chalks it up to being overwhelmed with life. And I've been really patient about that up until now, especially with us both being married and poly and respecting the other person's time. Um, I'm really scared that if I bring this up to him, that I read the blog post that he'll just dump me. We've never talked about his blog before, and I'm not sure if he thought I would read it or if he thought it would, I would not read it. I guess my question is, how do I bring this up? Should I wait a couple days or should I tell him I read the blog post. I don't want our relationship to end, but I also don't want to be with someone who doesn't actually like me. You know what you know. You read what you read, and you can't unknow it or unread it. That dilemma, I know what I know, I can't unknow it, usually comes up in the context of snooping, but you weren't snooping. He wrote a blog post. He put something out there in public for others to read, for strangers to read, and You read it. You found it. You were reading his blog, too, his publicly posted, publicly published blog. You were reading it. 
And so you know what you know. And I think you go to him and say, so the sex is great. I agree with you there. The sex is awesome. But hanging out with me is a burden. We don't click. We're connecting sexually, but we don't click socially or emotionally. How am I supposed to feel about the times when we do hang out now? How am I supposed to feel about the times when you cancel on me? You know, if he cancels when you're about to have sex and, you know, the sex is awesome, you don't have to feel bad about it. But if he cancels when he said he wanted to hang out with you or agreed to hang out with you socially, you're going to read into that. He just doesn't want to be with you socially, only wants to be with you sexually. Are you willing to be with him just sexually? Can you put that on the table? Do you just want to be a fuck buddy and nothing else? If you're not willing to be a fuck buddy and nothing else, then you need to end this. I don't know why you wouldn't want him to dump you. I don't know why, frankly, if I were in your shoes, I would dump him. I don't know why you wouldn't want to dump him or stop seeing him. Because it's not just the cruelty of putting that out there, posting that publicly for his friends to read and others to read and strangers to read. And then one of his friends meet you or run into you when you're out with him and they're like, oh, this is her. This is the woman who's a burden. This is the woman you don't connect with emotionally or socially, but boy, the sex is great. Like it's cruel for him to put you in that position where you might be assessed or judged in that way. And it is a display of bad judgment on his part. And even if the sex is awesome, do you want to continue to fuck somebody with no boundaries, no respect for your privacy, no respect for your feelings and with such terrible judgment? Maybe you do. Maybe the sex is that good that you're willing to fuck somebody who doesn't like you. Doesn't click with you. Feels like being with you when you're not naked and rolling around is a burden. You're willing to fuck somebody if the sex is good enough that you're willing to, to, to fuck him anyway, by all means, fuck him anyway. But if you want an emotional connection too, I don't think you're going to have that with this guy. And even if you did manage to forge an emotional connection with this guy, could you trust him going forward? Not to write some other dumb blog post where he discusses your relationship in a way that could wind up humiliating you publicly, making you feel worse can't imagine you're going to stop reading his blog now. So if I were you, I would end this myself. But in all honesty, if the sex were really amazing and I could extract from him a promise for it just to be sexual going forward and that he would not write about me on his dumb blog anymore, I might fuck him every once in a while. too. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay, cisgendered male living in North Carolina. And last weekend, some of my friends and I, we went up to D.C. for Pride Weekend. And while I was there, I was in an orgy, which was actually really fun. First time I had ever done it. And there was a BDSM sex slave tied up in one of the bathrooms with a sign on the door that said, Warning, BDSM slave, do whatever you want to him, pee on him, beat him, etc. And since it was my first time, Seeing that, I was a little put off um, just because he had a mask over his face. I couldn't tell like how happy he was, how into it he was. So I avoided that during the orgy. But later on, I got to meet him in person, talk to him, and found out that he really enjoys that and that he wished people had actually engaged with him more at the party. So later on in the weekend, I actually did end up being his master a little bit, you know, beating him, doing some water sports. And I got really into it. So he and I started texting back and forth a little bit. 
once I got back home. And soon I found out that his goal is over the next two months to become a 24-7 slave to my friend, who would be his main master. And to me, that seemed a little far, considering that it should be mostly about sex, not your entire life being an object, which is what he wants to be, completely dehumanized. And I also found out that he's pretty conservative and not out to any of his friends. So to me, that seemed like it was coming from a place of some self-hatred, maybe some internalized homophobia. And my question to you is, do I have a slight responsibility to encourage him to seek help? Since I do want to go back and engage with this, should I tell him that I'm kind of uncomfortable with that? Basically, is that a normal thing in the BDSM community? Is it a normal thing in the BDSM community? Depends on which thing we're talking about here. Is it normal to want to be 24-7 dehumanized object slave? No, that's not normal, but that is a relatively common fantasy. It's not an easy fantasy for anyone to turn into a reality. It's the sort of thing that a lot of people, a lot of people into that kind of kink will talk about, but very few people, even the ones talking about it, even the ones who say that this is what they want, believe that they'll ever get it or sincerely want it. And even if you really want it, 24-7 objectification and dehumanization, you're not going to find someone who can provide that with you. To keep someone 24-7 as a dehumanized object basically means you have to dedicate your entire life to running this person, to overseeing this person, to controlling and objectifying this person. And no one has time for that for more than maybe a weekend at a go. So when he says he wants 24-7 objectification and dehumanization and he wants it 24-7, 365 days a year, yeah, people fantasize about that. He's probably stroking himself while you guys are talking or texting about it. But he knows. He must know. But on some level, he knows or must know or will soon discover that this is an unrealistic desire, that this is something, again, that he can maybe make happen for himself for a weekend, but it's not something that he can make happen for himself 365 days a year. Is it normal in the BDSM community for someone to be not out to their friends? Is it normal for someone to be conservative and then have these crazy-ass kinks and want to be left in a bathroom with a mask on and a sign on the door that says, do anything to the slave in the bathroom? No, those things aren't normal, but again, they're also not unheard of. Hopefully he's on his way out. You can set aside the kink. There are plenty of people into all of this man's kinks who are out to all of their friends and our Bernie Sanders supporters, and our liberals and Democrats. So you can set aside the conservatism, and you can set aside the kink, and just have a conversation with him, gay man to gay man, about how he's living his life and what he wants out of his life. Maybe he just needs to hear from you and enough people, and maybe he hasn't been out for long or hasn't been sexually active for long. He hasn't encountered many out gay men yet. He just needs to hear from more out gay men about the benefits of being out. Everyone in your life. And your friends knowing that you're gay means that your friends know you and that they're actually your friends. And if you have friends who don't know you're gay and you're closeted, well, then they're not really your friends. And these are kind of gay 101 ideas that people wrestle with at 16, 17, 18, 19 when they're coming out of the closet. But a few people wrestle with these ideas that it's better to lose the friends who aren't really your friends and go find the friends who can really be your friends. Some people don't wrestle with these ideas until they've 
moved to Washington, D.C. and are working for a Republican senator and are finding themselves in bathrooms and masks with signs on doors saying, abuse the slave inside, do whatever you want to with them. Everyone moves at a different pace along their little journey to coming out. He might benefit from speaking to a kink-positive, sex-positive, gay-positive therapist, but you shouldn't pathologize his kinks. He shouldn't speak to a counselor or a therapist who pathologizes his kinks. His kinks are nothing to be ashamed of, nothing that should be pathologized. His conservatism, however, yeah, that's something he should be ashamed of. That you should definitely pathologize. But circling back to your question, you ask, do you have a responsibility to encourage him to seek help? No, you don't. You don't have a responsibility to encourage someone that you met at a party, played with once, and have talked to a little bit via text to seek help. But I do think that we want to leave our sex partners in better shape than we found them. And this guy sounds like a a bit of a mess. And a little bit of encouragement from you to think through his issues around who he's out to and who he's not out to and what he wants in his life and doesn't want in his life. And maybe some encouragement from you to speak with a sex positive, gay positive, kinks positive therapist. That might mean you left him in better shape than you found him. Again, I don't think that's your responsibility, but it's good to err on the side of honoring the campsite rule, leaving someone in better shape than you found him. Hi, Dan. I am a 23-year-old bisexual questioning cis woman from Chicago, Illinois, and I'm calling with a question about um, when it's the right time to begin exploring BDSM and kink. So for a bit of context, I just listened to your episode with Mistress Matisse, and it brought up this kind of debate, I guess, I've been having with a friend of mine where I had confided in this person that I was super interested in, you know, bondage, kink, um, consensual, non-consensual role plays and things along this line. And she said to me that I shouldn't begin exploring kink until I've quote unquote, I mean, as she put it, mastered vanilla sex. So, yeah, and what she was referring to is the fact that I've only had four sexual partners and each were one-night stands. So I've never had an ongoing sexual relationship with someone. I've never explored with someone for a length of time and really sussing out how the other person works. So, yeah, she was basically saying to me, oh, you have to, I don't know, I guess master and be proficient, as awful as that sounds, at vanilla sex before you can even begin exploring these other sexual fantasies that you have. And yeah, it just really threw me off and didn't feel great to have a friend say to me. So I guess my question for you is, is there such a thing as needing to, I guess, have a certain experience or enough experience with vanilla sex before you can start moving into kink? So you've only had four one-night stands and you've never had a relationship. Going into a kinky relationship, if you're interested in DS role play, consensual, non-consensual role play, if you're interested in bondage, uh, any form of, you know, impact play or, you know, erotic pain infliction, you have to negotiate that stuff. You have to be able to talk about that stuff and you have to be able to Really use your best judgment when assessing whether this person that you're having this conversation with can be trusted. And I think what your friend is clumsily trying to suggest here is that since you've never been in a a relationship, since you've never 
negotiated with anyone around sex and relationship issues that your skill set might not be highly developed enough to negotiate something as complicated as BDSM. And she may have a point, but there are folks out there, there are plenty of folks out there who are hardwired, super duper kinky in all of their sexual experiences and all of their sexual relationships and all of their sexual experience and all their romantic relationships have revolved around or involved kink and they're not necessarily doing it wrong. So instead of telling yourself and instead of letting your friend get in your head and tell you that you can't have the kind of sex that you're interested in having until you have the kind of sex you're not interested in having, what you need to tell yourself is the kind of sex that you want to have has some risks built in, some risks that are inherent. You're going to make yourself vulnerable. It's not that people who have vanilla sex also aren't vulnerable in a room with someone else. They are. But built into the things that you want to do is a higher degree of vulnerability, some varsity vulnerability, before you allow someone to tie you up, before you engage in consensual, non-consensual role play with someone, you really want to get to know them. You don't necessarily have to have a vanilla relationship with them or anyone else first, but you really have to get to know them. You have to have long extended conversations. You have to trust your gut. You have to, if they're players in the BDSM scene, check their references. Talk to other people that they have played with by finding them on for straight people, usually FetLife is a good place to find people and you're able to check their references or get involved in the organized BDSM community. Again, it's not a perfect system. It's not fail-safe. People can be abused by anyone anywhere, but less likely to be abused in a context where there are people around and, and they can vouch for this person. You get to interact with them in a low-stakes environment before you allow them to tie you up or engage in consensual, non-consensual role play with them. So contrary to your friend, I don't think you need to master vanilla sex and vanilla relationships before you can progress to kinky sex and kinky relationships. I just think you need to get a handle on what it is you want. And you need to go into your first kinky encounter, kinky relationship, advocating for yourself aggressively, negotiating, not in role. You are not a sub negotiating with a dom. You are a individual negotiating with another individual as equals about some consensual power exchange for a limited amount of time. And you're going to want to talk that shit to death and trust your gut and check in with the kinky friends that you need to make. And you can make if you get involved in the organized kink scene before you jump into bed or into bondage with anyone. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight woman who's been married to my husband for about four years. Um, neither my husband nor I are really into hardcore BDSM at all, but we're both sort of playful and curious to try out different things that sex has to offer. <laughs> and one of the things that my husband is interested in is tying me up. We sort of experiment a little bit with some very light sort of dom-sub type stuff, but nothing really physical yet. It's more kind of role play and stuff like that. I, in theory, <laughs> am turned on by the idea of being tied up, meaning when I fantasize about, you know, being tied up and having my husband tease me wh where I can't, you know, uh, physically interfere with what he's doing or whatever. That sounds exciting. But my problem is that I'm kind of claustrophobic. Um, that has manifested itself in various parts of my life. I don't like elevators, things I don't like small spaces, things like that. But the few times that we've tried to sort of actually try it out, and we've tried it in what I think are kind of baby steps. He's sort of tied like scarves and sheets around my wrists really loosely. 
and you know, we're not doing handcuffs or anything like that, um, I kind of freak out and it like totally takes me out of the moment. Sometimes it kind of depends on the mood I'm in, but sometimes even something like having his full weight pressing down on me so that I can't move, even that freaks me out. And I just sort of need to get him off me immediately or get untied immediately when I can't continue with what we're doing. Um, this is, like I said, kind of something that's happened throughout my life. It's not specific to sex, but it is definitely interfering with this particular thing that we're trying to do. Um, I've tried smoking weed, thinking that that might relax me and it actually made it worse. <laughs> um, so we won't be doing that again. But I'm just wondering if you have any tips or any ideas about how we could try to sort of build up to um, me being tied up in a way that would be fun and exciting for both of us that I wouldn't sort of have this claustrophobic reaction to. I like the idea of feeling out of control, but the actual physical manifestation of it really scares me when I'm in that moment. I have only one suggestion, and it sounds like you've already tried it and it didn't work, and that is symbolic bondage. That's, you know, you appear to be tied up. There are ropes or sheets or scarves loosely around your wrists, and you can get out of them yourself whenever you want to. That can help people who are interested in bondage but have a little freak out when they lose this kind of control. Get there. Get more comfortable with the idea of being tied up, more aroused about the prospect of actually being tied up, and build trust with the partner who is doing the tying up. But if you've already done the scarves and loosely knotted sheets route and you still freaked out and you're claustrophobic and even if he puts his full weight on you, that can be a problem, it may be that bondage isn't something that you two are going to be able to fold into your life, at least with you as the bound one. Another thing that might help is instead of you being the one who's tied up, tie him up. Get some experience with bondage and what's playful and fun and loving and cheerful about it. And it can be playful and fun and loving and cheerful. It doesn't have to be glowering and mean and sadistic and awful and dark. With him tied up and not necessarily tied to the bed. Another thing that might help you is instead of tying you to something, which may trigger your claustrophobia, to just stand and you be bound, or for you to be on top. So it's not his weight on you when you're tied to the bed, but he's laying on the bed and your wrists are tied in front of you in such a way where you can get out and you're in charge, that you have some control because you're sitting on his face or you're sitting on his dick and you still have freedom of movement even if you are mostly symbolically bound. But if that doesn't work, if tying him up isn't something that you want to do, it's not something that turns him on the thought of being tied up, and if even bondage that's mostly symbolic or entirely symbolic that you can just get out of whenever you want induces this panic response, unfortunately it might not be for you. But there's all sorts of other DS play that you can engage in, and you guys already have been engaging in other forms of DS play. Taking bondage out of the mix doesn't take dom-sub sex off the table. Hi, Jan. I'm a 33-year-old woman living on the East Coast. I re recently was um, confronted with a rumor about my serious boyfriend of a year. I was told he was cheating. I called him immediately and told him what was said in a non-accusatory way, and I was emotional when talking to him. He became agitated and told me that this wasn't an emergency and I shouldn't have called him at work. He then texted saying that he thought he found out who it was and that he was mad at me for accusing him. The next day, we talked and he stated that he knew I wasn't acu accusing and he appreciated how understanding I am and he was upset that someone was starting a rumor about him. Later that night, we talked with the girl that he was being accused with cheating with and the conversation went from 
I was trying to figure out why this girl was spreading a rumor back to I was accusing him. He and I spoke again that night and he was extremely upset and disrespectful to me. I didn't hear from him for two weeks. I decided to call after the two weeks and he did not pick up. I followed up with a text and I still have not heard from him. Just as a side note, I addressed this as a concern that someone was talking poorly about the person I truly care about and our relationship, not because I thought the rumor was true. Our relationship was going really well. And before this all started, we had hung the previous day and had made many plans for the summer. I'm not a person who trusts easily. And it is a big deal that our relationship has progressed to this point. I'm shocked at how mean he was and concerned about himself rather than our relationship. I'm not a person who causes drama and I've showed that I trust him. His reaction seems unlike the guy I've been dating this whole time and does not make sense with the situation. I guess my questions to you are, what are your opinions on this rumor, his behavior, and is he really ghosting me after a year-long serious relationship? I'm I'm truly perplexed by his behavior and the situation. My opinions on this rumor, his behavior, and whether he's really truly ghosting you after a year-long relationship. Well, let's take the last one first. He hasn't spoken to you for two weeks. You called. He didn't answer. You texted. He didn't respond. Yeah, he's absolutely really ghosting you after a year-long relationship. Whether the rumors are true or not, well, based on his actions, I would say they're likely true. But I'll never know with any certainty, and neither will you, whether they're 100% for sure, absolutely true. You will never know beyond a shadow of a doubt whether he was fucking this other girl. And neither will I. I'm not omniscient. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you what was going on with your boyfriend's dick whenever it was out of your sight. But I do know, based on his behavior, based on his reaction, that you kind of dodged a bullet here. You got out after 12 short months of a relationship with someone who wasn't the good and decent and loving person that you thought and hoped he might be at the start of the relationship. You say you're slow to trust. Okay, the takeaway from here is not never trust anyone ever again. The takeaway is trust but verify, and that sounds like what you tried to do. You trusted him, this came up, these rumors got back to you, you attempted to verify the fact that they were not true so you could continue on in this relationship. Don't exit this relationship or get chucked the fuck out of this relationship because you were dumped, he ghosted you, and never trust anyone ever again. Never make the same move. I don't want to call it a mistake. Never make the same mistake again. You have to be willing to give someone a chance. You want to watch out for red flags. You don't want to be blinded by love. You want this person, whoever you date in the future, to meet your friends. You want to listen to your friends and family and get their opinions and try to see them for who they really are, knowing at the beginning of a relationship, everyone is giving you the best version of themselves. Just like you're at the beginning of a relationship, giving that person the best version of yourself. And then you get to know them better and you can peek behind the set and you can see the seams and someone can be not as good or decent or perfect a version of themselves as they led you to believe they were at the start of the relationship, but still be good enough. Just like you're not the perfect version of yourself either, but you're good and loving enough to be worthy of that person's trust as they are worthy of your trust. So I don't want to tell you to exit this relationship and be slower to trust than you've been in the past you got to be willing to take a chance on people. That's why Abba sings, take a chance, take a chance, take a chance. Not take a certainty, take a certainty, take a certainty, take a certainty. Because a relationship is always a a risk. And if you want a risk-free life, if you never want to be betrayed, if you never want to be hurt by someone else, then be alone. But being alone comes with 
its own kind of pain for people who would rather be partnered. And you have to weigh the risk of someone else hurting you. And you know what? In a long-term relationship, that person's probably going to hurt you once in a while as you're going to hurt them once in a while. But you have to weigh that risk of being with someone, investing someone with your trust, and then betraying that trust once in a while, and then having to be forgiven. And that process, weigh that all against the pain of being alone if you don't want to be alone. There's people out there who want to be alone. They're not in pain. And we shouldn't treat people who would rather be alone or are alone as if they're damaged. They're not. But for people who want to be in partnerships, who say that they're slow or reluctant to trust, well, then you're not going to be in a partnership ever again or for very long. So, yeah, this is just a long way of saying you invested your trust in someone who proved in the end to be unworthy of it. And the lesson you should take from this isn't never trust anyone ever again. You're going to have to trust someone again. And hopefully the next guy that you trust won't turn out to be a shitty guy like the last guy you trusted. Hi, Dan. I am a cisgendered gay man from Europe, and I have pretty low refractory period, so I can ejaculate and keep going pretty much immediately for a few times. That's generally great because I can enjoy sex for longer and I don't have to hold back my orgasm, but I'm faced with a challenge here. Some of the partners that I regularly have sex with uh, come to expect that I I'll come multiple times every time and so they hold back their own orgasms. How can I let them know in an elegant way, verbally or non-verbally, that I'm in for a shorter encounter and absolutely okay with them coming with me or soon after I come for the first time? The additional difficulty here is I'm really into asses and not that much into dicks, so so much so that I have sex partners who really prefer to bottom and I don't jerk or suck them off generally. Um, so it really comes down to this. I don't want to be a dick about it, and I must admit that I have left some sexual encounters in the past where I felt my partner loved that we kept going for a long time, but they would have preferred to come themselves had they known the timing of when things change from hot to relaxed and just chilling. This is just a simple case of use your words. Sounds like you have regular sex partners, guys you see again and again. And you know that after that first orgasm, you can keep going and you can come again and you can come a third time, possibly even a fourth time. I've been with somebody with no refractory period, a male with no refractory period. It's sort of a genetic superpower. Congrats, you won the dick lottery. But the orgasms become less intense over time. You're still capable of having them. They're still pleasurable. But the orgasm, the third one, isn't as heightened and intense and powerful for you as the first. And you're perfectly fine having just one. These guys that you're with are probably in awe of your superpower and they may assume that you want to have as many orgasms as you possibly can, that you want to ride this multi-orgasmic wave as long as possible. But that's not true. It is, however, on their part, a reasonable assumption. You know, straight men who are with women who are multi-orgasmic, oftentimes their one sad, sorry male orgasm, typical sorry, sad male orgasm, for, you know, her third or fourth. So they stay engaged and interested in sex as she is climaxing again and again. And these guys, these bottoms you're with, same thing. They are delaying their orgasm because they want to still be turned on and into it after your third so that you can enjoy your third. That's all you got to do is say to them like, yeah, you know this about me. I can come again and again and again. I prefer though 
for us to come together and for you to stroke yourself while I fuck your ass and to come with me or shortly after me. Because after the second or third, yeah, I'm still hard. I'm still coming. It's still pleasurable, but it's not as intense. And I'm kind of, even though my dick's still in the game, erotically disengaging. And if you just use your words there, these guys, I promise you, will want to come when it works best for you, which is what they're doing right now. They are waiting to come until the optimal moment they assume for you. Disabuse them of that assumption. Correct that assumption. Use your words and you won't have this problem. Hi, Dan. I'm a 33-year-old cis woman. I dated a woman for the first time this year. We were together for 10 months long distance. We talked on the phone every day, flew to see each other about every six weeks, and fell pretty deeply in love. I'm very cautious in relationships and always get out at the first sign that it won't work. So at 33, I've never dated anyone for more than a year, and this is my first time being in love. She and I have really compatible values and lifestyles. I trust her, and it feels like we have something really special. One of my friends described it as powerfully good, and I agree. It feels powerful. I'm calling because while sex with her feels good, and I love being intimate with her and making her feel good, it just doesn't do it for me the way that sex with a cis man does. We tried to strap on a few times, and it helped but I still miss men's bodies and the mutuality of PIV sex. I feel pretty emotionally and socially satisfied by the relationship, though I also do miss attention from men. But I'm noticing while dating a woman that what I'm craving might not be attention and affection so much as male validation and approval. So I don't know if that's a sign of me being straight um, or being a product of a patriarchal society. I definitely have some mild daddy issues related to approval. My therapist of 10 years doesn't seem to believe in a sexuality spectrum. He says that just like a gay person can't make themselves straight, I can't make myself gay. That feels ignorant considering how much I love this woman, but I wonder if there is some truth to it. Also, I'm ready to have kids soon, and she's a few years younger than me and doesn't think she ever wants kids, but isn't positive. So we're spending the summer apart to think about both of these things. We're not talking, which sucks, because after being long distance most of the year, this woman I love is working just four hours from me in a temporary seasonal job. At the end of her job, we'll check in and see if anything has changed and we want to be together or if we stay broken up. If the kids thing has changed for her, I want to know if I can be all in. I don't want to move forward with the fear that I might one day break her heart because I prefer to be with a man. So is it being prudent to break up or even take this break and not drag the relationship on when it's likely not viable because of the kids thing and because I prefer to sleep with men? Or are we prematurely ending this relationship out of fear and not letting us both be happy for however long we can be happy together? If I'm bi-amorous or pan-amorous and mostly heterosexual, can I be with a woman long-term? Or is my therapist right? We both prefer monogamy but are open-minded, though I think she would be hurt knowing I need something sexually that she can't provide. So this woman you've been going out with for 10 months, but it's been long distance that entire time, and you've seen her once every six weeks. Now, I'm bad at math, but four weeks roughly in a month, 10 months, that's 40 weeks divided by six, that equals... 6.666 times that you've seen each other in person. You've only been with this woman in person 6.66 times. And you've already missed, while being with her, you you crave the attention, validation, but also sex, physical sex with a male-bodied person. It seems to me that that is a bad sign for this relationship, that – Deep in the honeymoon stage and you're long distance and you're only seeing each other very occasionally, deep in that sort of honeymoon wanting to drink each other's spit stage of the relationship, you're already craving what she can't bring to the table. You're craving the person that she is not. You're missing 
men and sex with men and strap on sex didn't scratch that itch for you. You're missing the intensity of that PIV sex intensity that you experience during PIV sex, not objective intensity of PIV sex. There's plenty of people out there who have tons of great intense sex without any PIVing at all. So you've learned this about yourself. So what do you do? Well, you get a better therapist because the choice isn't just gay or straight. You say maybe you're biamorous and heterosexual. I would say maybe you're biamorous or panamorous, but also bisexual. You enjoy sex with this woman, but you don't want to only have sex with this woman or only have sex with women for the rest of your life. And that is an option. And that is on the table. She has said that she might be interested for you in having an open relationship in the same way that she has said for you, she might be interested in at least thinking about having kids. Well, I know women out there who are lesbian identified. I know women out there who are bi identified, who are in relationships with other women where one or both in one case sometimes have sex with men because they're bisexual, but homoamorous, which is why they round themselves up to lesbian, identify as lesbian, function in the world as lesbians, but occasionally have sex with men. And that is an option for you. And knowing what you know about yourself, that you can have a relationship with a woman, that you enjoy sex with a woman, but that sex with men isn't something that you can see yourself living without for the rest of your life. That should be perhaps the kind of relationship that you seek with this woman or with whoever you wind up partnered with long-term if you two decide after taking this break not to get back together again. You also have the option of if the right woman comes along or if this woman proves to be the right woman for you, being with a woman who understands that it's an open relationship and that sometimes you are going to seek out and have sex with men because you enjoy it too, not because you enjoy it instead, not because, well, you do to say you kind of enjoy it more, but you might want to not tell your girlfriend that exactly in that way, but that you enjoy sex with men also and you want to have the kind of relationship or you need to have the kind of relationship that allows for it. And those kinds of relationships are possible. If you listen to this show, you've heard lots of people on the show asking questions or sharing their stories who are in exactly those kinds of relationships. So, so fuck your therapist. The choice isn't whether you're going to be gay or straight. The choice is whether you're going to be the person that you know yourself to be and try to craft for yourself the kind of relationships, plural, that would allow you to be who you are and to be the happiest possible iteration of the person that you know yourself to be and the person that you are. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the sexy tech savvy at-risk youth. I am wondering what advice you can give regarding hetero newbies and the prostate. I'm in a long-term relationship with my male partner, and I would really like to stimulate his prostate, but I have not been having much success. He lets me put stuff up his butt and play around because it is a huge turn-on for me, but says that it doesn't really do much for him beyond a feeling of transgressing a small personal taboo. Specifically, I've tried using my fingers and playing around with small butt plugs. As I love things up my butt and have heard a lot about the joys of the male prostate gland, I find it hard to believe that this just does nothing for him. I just think maybe I'm not going about it the right ways. Of course, if he still doesn't like it once I have given it my most educated attempts, I would absolutely accept that it just isn't his jam. But I'm not ready to give up on it yet. Could you walk me through some prostate basics? How deep does one aim to go with fingers or toys? What motions are usually good? Is there a book I should read? My dream is that I can get him to love it so much that he'll want me to peg him one day. 
First things first, we've described the at-risk youth as tech-savvy, but we have never described them as sexy. So let's just stick to tech-savvy at-risk youth. Although, of course, some of them want me to put it on the record that they are, of course, terribly, terribly sexy. But officially here at the Lovecast, they are merely tech-savvy at-risk youth. All right. So the prostate, it's not at the top of anything. It's not way the fuck up there. It's just a few inches in there. And if you really want to locate it, face your partner, put two fingers in their ass, and then make a sort of slow, you know, come to me motion, the same general direction that people are given when they're trying to locate the G spot in women. And you make this sort of come to me motion. And as, as he's ejaculating, you will feel the prostate harden and rise up and swell. And it's about the size of a walnut. And again, it's not, you know, 34 inches up his ass. It's just a couple of inches up his ass. So, you know, someone who enjoys prostate stimulation, it's not about the prostate being slammed. It's not about having a 12-inch dick up your ass that can reach your prostate. It's about something sliding by your prostate that stimulates the prostate. But fully 25-ish percent, there hasn't been a lot of great research into this, but the research there has been done into this, fully 25% of gay guys don't like to have their asses fucked or really played with much. So the prostate, like nips, like nipples on lots of people, isn't necessarily wired for everyone. There are people who enjoy anal intercourse or lots of women who enjoy anal intercourse, some of whom I believe are getting a kind of bank shot clitoral stimulation because a lot of clitoral tissues deep inside the body. But there are lots of people out there who enjoy anal for other reasons. Even gay guys, lots of straight women, they enjoy it. Lots of bi women, they enjoy anal for the psychological impact. They enjoy anal because there's tons of nerve endings all around the anus. They enjoy anal because of the pleasure it provides their partner. They really get off on that and they catch a groove. But it's not necessarily about the prostate stimulation. And the fact that there are so many gay guys out there who aren't into getting fucked at all, some of them are tops. They prefer to fuck. A lot of them are gay guys who don't do anal, don't fuck or get fucked. And it stands to reason that if there are gay guys out there who don't like it and whose prostates aren't wired, the odds are high-ish that your straight boyfriend might be in the 25% if he were a gay guy or the 25% of highly evolved straight guys who are down with a little anal play but who discover in the process of doing that anal play with their wannabe pegger girlfriends that their prostates aren't wired and never will be wired. And there's no amount of butt toys or depth or stroking or prodding that's going to flip a switch in their prostate and wire them up. All that said, you asked for a book recommendation. The best is still Anal Pleasure and Health by the late great sexologist Dr. Jack Morin. You should start there. Start with Anal Pleasure and Health. Also, you want to put a butt plug in, you know, somebody who, some straight guy particularly who is experimenting with penetration, experimenting with butt stimulation. Put a butt plug in and then set it and forget it, as they say. Get the butt plug in his ass and then have PIV intercourse, have the other kinds of sex that you two enjoy having. Let him forget it's kind of up there. And there's this amazing thing that happens when a guy is climaxing. His sphincters contract. His kegels contract to help force all that jizz out of his body. And at that moment, while his butthole is contracting – when there is a plug in there and it's a well-lubricated plug, it will move very subtly. It won't start fucking him, but it will move subtly against his prostate. But a lot of guys who maybe like your boyfriend don't enjoy the feeling of fingers in their butts. And there's lots of people out there who enjoy anal play and anal pleasure and same who don't like fingers because fingers are bony and fingers bend in weird ways and it just doesn't feel the same. And But they do enjoy that feeling of a butt plug that's been – 
set and forget that's been set and forgotten until that moment that they are coming and suddenly it's nudging their prostate in this sexy way. And doing that a few dozen times allowing your boyfriend to discover pretty much on his own, except for you get the pleasure of putting the butt plug in if he'll allow you, that this works for him. Maybe your quickest way to get to that pegging place that you would like to get to. But in the end or in his end, you might not get there. And so maybe he'll give you a hall pass to go peg someone else if this is an ultimate fantasy of yours. But if it never works for him, it never works for him and you'll have to respect that. But book recommendation, again, Anal Pleasure and Health, Dr. Jack Morin. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they've published for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining me for this What You Got, Kara Dunkley is a PhD student in clinical psychology at the University of British Columbia, where they do a lot of really interesting and terrific research on sexuality. She's also a therapist at the West Coast Center for Sex Therapy. Hey, Kara Dunkley, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on here. Can I call you Dr. Dunkley in advance? How's the PhD coming? It's coming along. I still need to go on internship and defend, so it's a slight ways away. Okay, then we'll hold off on the the Dr. Dunkley (laughs) and just call you Kara. So uh, you just brought out a new study. No idea what's in it. What you got for us? What's it about? Well, it's really a theoretical paper on how pain might be experienced as pleasurable within the context of BDSM. Do go on. So what we did is we reviewed the available research on pain and the available research on BDSM, and we used the findings from those two bodies of research to postulate a theory accounting for how pain can be experienced as pleasure within you know, a BDSM encounter where that same sort of stimulation or pain experience would be experienced as quite unpleasant for for someone who's uh, not practicing BDSM. It could also be experienced as unpleasant for someone who does practice BDSM if it happens in a random way. You know, if somebody just punches you in the face on the bus, that's going to be different than somebody, well, not that a lot of people are into punch play who are kinky, but... You know, if somebody hits your butt really hard with a belt randomly on a street corner without your prior knowledge, prior consent or awareness or any prep or buildup, like even a BDSMer is going to experience that as painful in a way that they might not in the context of play. Oh, totally. Accidental pain or pain experienced outside of SM is typically not experienced as desirable for those who enjoy SM pain. You know, a masochist wouldn't enjoy the dentist. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. It's something that people who aren't kinky don't understand often is they'll, you know, say to their kinky friends, you know, their kinky friend will stub their toe or, you know, walk into a, you know, low doorframe and and bump their head and their non-kinky friends will go, well, you probably liked that. Yeah, not at all. It's qualitatively different in terms of how it's experienced. So so, so walk us through, walk the non-kinksters out there, walk them through what are the qualities that add up to that qualitative difference in the experience, the subjective experience of pain for someone who is kinky? Well, basically, it's a multitude of interconnected factors that likely alter the experience of pain in the context of BDSM, uh, such as 
you know, neurological networks in the brain. There's an overlap in the areas of the brain that process pain and process pleasure and allow those to be experienced at the same time. Also, uh, neurotransmitter activity, uh, natural endorphins, the environmental surroundings are, of course, key, one's emotional state. Uh, the fact that there's the presence of consent and choice makes a difference um, and interpersonal connection, uh, having you know a partner that you're playing with there. Also, mm-hmm. sexual arousal, which is, of course, not necessarily there, but often is. Um, would influence the perception of pain and also memories from past experiences. That is something people who aren't kinky should be able to wrap their heads around, um, that, that context matters. You know, even people who don't think of themselves as kinky might like a little slap, a little bite, a little hair pulling in the context of, of sex when they are aroused. All things that outside of that context, you know, if it happens randomly in line at Starbucks, won't arouse you and will piss you off or make you very upset. But in the context of arousal, those exact same actions you're going to experience differently and subjectively in the moment. Very much so. Tell us more about the overlap in the brain between the the chunks of your brain that experience and process pain and pleasure. That's really interesting. Yeah. So uh, the association between pain and pleasure likely exists in part due to this neurological overlap in the networks that regulate uh, pleasure and pain and which allow uh, pleasure to be experienced um, with pain at the same time. Um, what we're thinking or proposing, and again, there's no empirical research to support this. This is based on, you know, just findings from the available literature, is that pain might be actively transformed in the brain by a process called top-down processing. So basically, sensations on the skin lead to signals that convey the nature of those sensations in the brain. And then the brain regulates the degree to which pain would be experienced by sending signals back down to nerve cells and then releasing endorphins. And endorphins do what? So endorphins are kind of like, they're they're, their body's natural opioids, and they typically reduce the experience of pain. It's kind of like the the runner's high that people experience um, during Mm -hmm. intense athletic exertion. Endorphins would be released and that would contribute to, um, you know, varied changes within the body and has the potential to create kind of an altered state of consciousness. But you need the right buildup and it needs the right context. Oh, yeah. It's not just throw somebody in a wood chipper and the endorphins will kick in and they'll be fine. Oh, no. This is just one of the many factors that contribute to uh, that experience. I, I wanted to ask you about more extreme forms of, of pain play, consensual in a BDSM context. You know, when people think of pleasurable pain, they often think of mild pain, you know, gentle tit clamps, uh, you know, a, a gentle spanking or, you know, the use of a deer hide flogger that's actually, you know, very soft. But then you will see in, in, in some BDSM play, and I've seen some public BDSM play, where the infliction of pain was really extreme, where someone was using, you know, a, a, whatever, a bullwhip and really hurting someone. But it was consensual. And although the pain was off the charts, it was nothing that, you know, natural opioids, endorphins could turn into a pleasurable sensation. It was still completely consensual, kind of joyful, and the person on the receiving end of that pain welcomed it and wanted it, but it didn't seem to be, you know, this is my, the, the overlap in my brain between the pe- pleasure and pain centers 
just kind of blurring lines here. It seemed very much about extreme pain and extreme suffering, and yet it was still experienced in some way as pleasurable by the sub. Yeah. How, so, does that, how does that work? What's going on there? I think anybody can wrap their heads around, um, you know, a little spanking, a little like tit clamp or a little biting. But when people sometimes encounter online, when they're diving, you know, doing a deep dive in pornography and they encounter extreme BDSM, that's when they go, okay, I don't get it. How could this ever be pleasurable for the person on the receiving end? Well, I think it really comes down to the various motivations behind it. So the pain that we were talking about a moment ago is what could be understood as transformed pain in that pain is experienced as something else, something pleasurable or rewarding. There's also um, pain that is enjoyable for the fact that it's painful. It hurts, but damn, does it hurt good. Um, mm. So it's, it's challenging, and um, that endurance of pain can promote feelings of achievement and pride. Um, in I addition- think of people who run marathons here. This is the mo- you know, we, we look at people who run marathons who do extreme sports, and we see them at the end of the race, and they're destroyed. And yet, we don't question why anyone would do that. Add a boner, add a wet pussy, and people are like, you're crazy. To push your body to these extremes for sex is not okay. To push your body to extremes for the New York City Marathon, that is okay. Well, it's it's cathartic, right? People will go for a run after a bad day to let off steam. Some people, you know, pursue BDSM to do the same thing. Kara Dunkley, PhD student in clinical psychology at the University of British Columbia. Where can listeners who want to read the study for themselves find it online? Well, there, it's um, published on the journal website. Uh, it's online and ahead of print right now, and that's the Journal of Sex Research. They can also uh, contact me directly on ResearchGate, and then I can send them a, a PDF of the paper as well. Thank you so much for coming on uh, the Savage Lovecast and talking about your new study with us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old queer woman living in the Pacific Northwest, I recently discovered that I'm super into male-to-female transgender porn when the women still have biological penises. I am extremely sexually attracted to both male and female biological sex organs and love to look at a person that has a penis and feminine breast. I feel really bad about this thing that I'm into because I feel like I'm being insensitive towards the trans community, preoperative trans women in particular. I have two questions. The first is, I'm wondering if this is okay to watch this type of porn because the trans porn I do enjoy watching is sex positive, totally nonviolent and gender bending, which is also a major turn on for me. For example, I enjoy pegging my male partners. Or if me enjoying this porn is just me being an objectifying trans chasing creep. My second question is, I want to explore pegging and other gender switching role play activities with my current partner And I'm not sure how to roll out this kink, if you can even call it that. We've been in a sexual relationship for a year, but have known each other basically our entire lives, and I feel really comfortable with him. I've broached the subject of ass play with him before, and he wasn't opposed, so I think that's a good sign that he'd be receptive to this. But I'm worried he won't be into it or enthusiastic, and that this might be a kink too far. It is perfectly okay for you to watch and enjoy this kind of porn, porn featuring trans women who have penises. If you want to be sensitive to the trans community, 
the first thing you should do after enjoying this kind of porn, before enjoying this kind of porn, is delete from your vocabulary the term preoperative. Preoperative implies that the trans person whose porn you're enjoying isn't finished transitioning and that they are not quite fully realized as a woman because they still have a penis and they're just existing in this state of preoperation. And, and, and that's not true. There are trans people out there who are done transitioning or finished transitioning who have decided to keep the genitals that they have, that they were born with, and be women with penises. And a woman can have a penis and a penis can have a woman. And to live in the world as fully valid women who happen to have penises. And it's fine for you to enjoy porn featuring women with penises. And it's fine for you to, in particular, be attracted to women with penises. Objectification is only a problem when you only see the person who is also an object. We are also physical things who exist in the world as only an object. But if you see someone as the object that they are, but also as a human being with needs and feelings and desires of their own, then it isn't wrong to be attracted to a certain physical type. If you were only attracted to cisgendered males with penises as a straight woman, you wouldn't even think to question whether you were objectifying those kinds of males and whether it was okay for you to watch that kind of porn featuring people with the kind of body that you're attracted to. Well, luckily for you and luckily for the world, you're attracted to more kinds of people and different kinds of bodies than the average straight woman would be. And you shouldn't be ashamed of that or embarrassed about it. And so long as when you seek out sex partners, you don't treat them as only objects, there's nothing wrong with seeking out that person with that kind of body that you would like to be with. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying that combo of beautiful breasts and hot cock. As for your partner of a year, he's already told you he's open to at least discussing anal play with him on the receiving end of that anal play. So have that discussion. Sometimes that discussion is advanced when the couple watches a little bit of porn together. So find some porn and watch it with him. Make sure that he understands that, you know, the first times that you guys explore a little bit of anal play with you exploring his butt, it doesn't have to be fucking. It doesn't have to be pegging. Go get a butt plug, go get a vibrator and do some very low stakes anal exploration and let him have a few dozen orgasms with his anus in play, whether that's just you stroking it, you using a luby finger on the outside of it, or you, you know, putting a bony finger inside of it. I'm not a fan of bony fingers. Obviously I have an anti bony finger and butt bias myself, or you putting a nice lubed up medium sized butt plug in there and then treating him to an orgasm with his anus in play and his prostate in play and let him see how fun that is and how pleasurable that is. And it could be the case that in a few months' time, he is begging you to peg him. And you too might want to pick up Anal Pleasure and Health by Dr. Jack Morin and give it a read. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old woman, and I am calling because my boyfriend keeps pissing the bed. I'm getting so fucking sick of this. We've been together about two years. The sex is amazing. I really love him. He's the first person I've been in love with. Um, we have a pretty good relationship. But um, we're both pretty heavy drinkers, like, all on that. Like, we could probably both stand to cut back just a little bit. And sometimes when he get dr gets drunk, he pisses the bed. It's basically, it first was seemed to be happening whenever he, like, moved into a new apartment. Like, he was, like, unsettled. And I asked him to see a therapist. And he was like, no, I just need to drink less. And I'm like, okay, but, you know, I'm really tired of fucking waking up in your piss and then having to sleep in a bed with no sheets. 
anyways, I'm fucking exhausted. I'm like, I've tried everything. He gets like so sad and ashamed and like won't want, won't want to talk about it. I was like, can you just fucking get adult diapers? Like, I like, I don't know. I guess my question for you is like, I don't know how to deal with this issue without like shaming him. Cause like I drink a lot too. And like, you can't control if you're pissing the bed while you're asleep. Like I get that, but something needs to happen because if he doesn't come up with solution, the solution for me might be that we are not dating anymore. <laughs> so is there any suggestion? I feel like this is the type of thing someone may have asked on your show before. Like, please, please, please help me. You say you don't want to shame him, but you also say that you've said, can you get fucking adult diapers, which is pretty shamey. So don't want to shame him. Seems like you've already crossed that bridge. You're already in shaming territory. I think your boyfriend's right. You say something needs to be done and you wonder what that something might be. And you, I think your boyfriend's right. He needs to drink less or drink not at all. This happens when he's drunk. And so maybe on those nights when you two both really get into it, when you both are knocking him back, he sleeps at his place. You sleep at your place. Maybe you get a kiddie pool for your room and he sleeps curled up in that at night when you two are super drunk. Or maybe you take a page from all the people we've had on the show talking about what to do when they're with someone or they are someone who squirts a lot during sex and you lay down a bunch of puppy pads or those absorbent throws that are marketed and sold to women who squirt. You're still going to wake up in his piss, but it's not going to necessarily soak your sheets or get into your mattress quite as much. But yeah, the answer here, the solution here is drink less or drink not at all. If you drink so much that you are regularly pissing the bed and pissing the girlfriend and pissing the girlfriend off in the middle of the night, you're drinking too much. And if you can't see that and you can't support your boyfriend maybe in drinking less because you don't want to drink any less yourself, then you could be enabling this behavior. You could be part of the problem and the end of this relationship might be part of the solution, not just solving you getting pissed on in the middle of the night, but maybe helping your boyfriend realize that the drinking and the pissing of beds is costing him this good and decent relationship with a lot of great sex. And so maybe he needs to choose between good and decent relationships with a lot of sex or all of the booze that he has up to now enjoyed knocking back. And it might be easier for him to choose that with a different partner, a partner who, like him, may want to make different choices around the amount of alcohol they're consuming. Hi, Dan. I'm a 19-year-old bisexual agender person from the Bay Area of California, and I have a question about having sex when you're in a break during a relationship. Uh, so recently, I had to go on an indefinite break slash leave my partner of four years because she was being emotionally abusive to me for a long time. She has had to go see a psychiatrist about having borderline personality disorder. And I guess I was just wondering, because my friends have told me that if there's nothing wrong with having sex while on a break, that there's no expectation of that. But at the same time, I personally feel like that would be some sort of boundary violation or morally wrong. I know I need to be careful about not getting into a rebound relationship. And I'm trying to help alleviate that by finding a cuddle buddy. But other than that, I wanted your take on having sex while you're on a break. If you're wondering if something, anything is a boundary violation, it's your partner you need to ask for clarity about 
their boundaries. I think being on a break means you're free to basically function as a single person in the world. That includes hooking up, even dating or initiating a relationship with someone else. People take breaks from their relationship and that means the relationship is off. Some people think that means the relationship is on hold and they still have a claim over the other person's body or emotions. I don't think that's the case. So if you and I were on a break, it wouldn't be a violation if you slept with somebody else or had some other cuddle buddy or even initiated a relationship with someone else. But you're not on a break from me. You're on a break from your partner of four years. Now, it may be the case that you're on one of those breaks where you're not even communicating with each other. You're not supposed to text or call. So reaching out to them and asking for clarity about whether you're able to sleep with other people may be a violation of some already previously stated boundary. That said, I think you need to err on the side of reaching out or making that call or sending that text. Just to be clear, does being on a break mean you and I are both free to date or see or fuck other people? You're going to have to ask the question. You're going to have to get some clarity, not from your friendly sex and relationship advice podcast host, but from your partner, the person that you're currently on a break from. And I do got to say, you are only 19 years old. You say you've been with your partner for four years. Look around. How many people in their 20s or 30s do you know who are still with the person that they were dating at 15, which is how old you were when this relationship began? As an old person, the advice I find myself really wanting to give you is don't take a break from this relationship. Break up with this person. that you, So you are free to act or move in the world without any encumbrance, emotional or otherwise. That would be the wisest course of action. Breaking up with this person, breaking up with somebody you dated, began dating at 15, doesn't mean you're not allowed to date this person ever again. It just means you're not beholden to them. You don't have to answer to them right now. You're free. You haven't been a free actor, emotionally, sexually, for four years since you were 15 years old, since you were a sophomore in high school. And if the relationship was emotionally abusive, I think a clean break, not a break, but a clean break, a break up would be not just in your own best interests, but in your current on a break partner's best interest. They need to sort their shit out. And I think you need to be free. So if you want to keep this a break, ask your partner what that means, get some clarity, but I would encourage upgrading this break to a breakup. Hey, Dan, I'm Tech Savvy at Rescue. I'm calling because I'm worried I gave bad advice. So I was trying to channel my inner Dan Savage. Uh, I had a friend call me. Uh, she's dating a guy who she's really into. The relationship seems really good. And she was feeling really apprehensive because he asked her if she would have a threesome with him and another man. I initially said she thought that she was going to say that she was apprehensive because she was worried he was secretly gay. And actually, that wasn't it. She's concerned because apparently he's one of those people that's kind of like turned on and titillated by the idea of her being with other men. They apparently when they're in bed, he will ask her about her past sexual experiences and kind of gets really into it. Her concern is that later after these conversations, he seems a little insecure about it, almost not angry, but just kind of bothered by it. By the fact that she's had a past sexual life. He apparently seems really insecure when she goes on vacation, asks her if she wants a hall pass, which she's never uh, mentioned wanting. So her concern is that if they go ahead with this threesome, that he's actually 
going to be really bothered by it. And she's kind of just worried for him. So my advice to her was that probably some of the insecurity that he's feeling is part of what turns him on. And she does admit that. I told her that if she's going to do it, she should start slow, go to a bar, have him watch her make out with somebody, see how he reacts. But her biggest thing is like his mental health. Like she's worried about about him actually feeling uh, ashamed or violated after agreeing to let her do this with another man. And I guess I'm not as concerned about that. I don't know. I feel like that's probably part of what turns him on as long as he doesn't spin it on her and, and, and act as though she's done something wrong. I don't know. I'm just wondering if I gave good advice, what else I can add. I want them both to have a good time. And I was a little caught off guard by the question. Your friend should definitely take your advice, but not for the reasons you gave. She should definitely go out with her boyfriend some night, make out with some other dude, see how he reacts, not for his mental health, not to protect him, but for her own emotional and sexual safety. There are a lot of people out there who are turned on, a lot of men out there who are turned on by the idea of their wives or girlfriends being with other men. A lot of them are healthy about it. Some of them are not healthy about it. In the moment, they are turned on by their wives or girlfriends' stories about being with other men. After they come, after they've had sex, after they've asked to hear these stories, insecurity, jealousy, control all come pouring back in. After they come, they begin to kink shame themselves and then they take it out on their wife or their girlfriend. They treat their wife or girlfriend as if they had done something wrong for having a past or for having a present if they encourage their wife or girlfriend to get with someone else in a three-way or in some other way. And then they're turned on by it. And then after the turn on passes, the rage, the jealousy, the insecurity, all of that rises to the surface in an unsexy way. And they punish their wife or girlfriend for it. So I would encourage your friend to figure out right now with this guy before she takes another step toward cuckolding him or however he understands whatever label he uses to describe this turn on what's going on with him. She needs to say to him, look, you asked me to tell these stories and afterwards you seem uncomfortable. Afterwards you seem a little angry. Afterwards, sometimes I feel like I'm being punished for having a past, a past that you encourage me to share with you, a past that you are turned on in the moment by me having. And you need to work that out. You need to reconcile those two things. If you're turned on by me having this past, you can't be angry at me after the fact for having this past. If you want me to share these stories or a reality, if you want me to get with some other guy with you or without you in the future to turn you on, I'm not going to do that if that's going to get me in trouble when your dick isn't hard anymore. So, dude, what's up? It may be that he feels turned on and afterwards is ashamed, or it may be that he feels turned on and afterwards he feels obligated to perform discomfort. He may worry that she thinks there's something wrong with him if he's not jealous. And it may be that he's performing jealousy because he feels consciously or subconsciously it's what she expects of him, that it's the corrective after the fact that she would like to see or that he thinks that she would like to see. And she needs to make it clear to him that that is not what she wants that he does not have to do jealousy after the fact for her. And again, this could be completely subconscious, but sometimes it takes someone else pointing this out to you for you to see your shit and own your shit and discard your shit. And there is some shit here. And there's some shit 
that they have to work through and process here together before your friend takes this risk because you don't want her to be in a position where she has sex with somebody else in front of her boyfriend at his request and then he's furiously angry at her. You know, some people who want this, who don't engage in this kind of behavior, who you know, are turned on by their partner's stories or aroused by the thought of their partner getting with somebody else in the moment when they confront that reality, when their partner has been with someone else and is telling them about it and it's really happened or their partner is with someone else in front of them, it can drudge up all sorts of unexpected reactions. It can dredge up feelings that they didn't anticipate having of you know, fear, anger, insecurity, rage. And that's in someone who never demonstrated any conflict uh, about these desires. And your friend's boyfriend is demonstrating before the fact conflict about these desires. And that would make realizing his fantasy right now for him where he's at at the moment dangerous, not just for him and his mental health, but for your friend's emotional, sexual, and potentially physical safety. So there's more work that they have to do, more talking that they have to do before this three-way can even be in the planning stages, much less realized. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some tweets. Gregory Davis tweets, hey, Dan Savage and the Savage Lovecast. The bi guy on today's episode explicitly said he was not attracted to men, but only to dick. People like him aren't bi. He is a dick fetish, at least says this bi guy. Well, there we might have to agree to disagree, Gregory. I think bi is a pretty expansive category, and I am all for more people identifying as queer rather than fewer people identifying as queer, whatever brand of queer they identify as. Juliet tweets, can't think of a better way to start my birthday than a quickie, and then listening to at Fake Dan Savage's Magnum Savage Lovecast on my commute. Thank you so much, Juliet. Thank you for being a subscriber to the Magnum Savage Lovecast. And finally, Alicia Spear tweets, is it just me or is that fake Dan Savage kind of gentle and metered on episode 664? I keep expecting Dan to rip someone a new one about accidentally outing their nephew or having anti-queer cartoons in their past. Kind of nice to see your maternal side, Dan. What the fuck, Alicia? I feel like I have to blow up at you and be a big asshole to, you know, put my thumb on the scales. You used metered when you meant measured. And oh my God, how dumb is that? Actually, Thank you very much for your tweet. I do have a maternal side. I think we all have a maternal side. Sometimes I let my maternal side come out to play on the Savage Lovecast. All right, and now your response calls. Hey, Dan, this is a response to the lady who does not like it when partners try to uh, try to make her come. Yeah, you're not alone. <laughs> you're not alone. Um, my reasons might be a little different. For me, it's a performance anxiety thing. It's very, very frustrating to be put on the spot and be like... You know, okay, baby, have you, you know, have you come? Have you come yet? Are you coming? How about now? How about now? And it drives me crazy. It takes me out of the moment. I get angry and then I just want it to be over. Totally different reasons, but still, there's just something about another person saying, I've decided you're going to do this, so do this now. It's not fun in that context. So you're not alone. It's okay if you just want to do it yourself later or if you want to do it yourself at any point. And if your partners aren't cool with that, Oh, yeah, Dan's right. They're just not the partners for you. Hey, this is in response to the woman who outed her nephew to his grandfather. Um, do not feel bad at all. This is what ants are for. Um, you don't want to have to sit down and come out and have a real big heart-to-heart -to, -heart to every member of your family and 
look your grandfather in the eye and say, I like butt sex. You did the totally right thing that many gay people, including myself, appreciate. You tell a chatty aunt or make sure they know from Facebook. And then hopefully word just trickles out. If anything, you should just send him a text message. Hey, I didn't realize grandpa didn't know that you were gay yet. Just to let you know, he's totally cool with it. And it's kind of a relief because then when you want to bring someone home to meet the family, you don't have to worry about coming out and having them all judge your new partner. Hi, I'm calling in response to the cartoonist who's suffering from guilt in episode 664. I also suffer from some of the same guilt in addition to having stuff written on the internet that I'm not proud of. Um, However, that was 10 years ago, and I'm proud to say that I have changed a lot in that time frame. And I realized fairly recently that that change is hope for me and motivation for me to look around and know that there are people listening because I was listening 10 years ago, five years ago, and here I am today. I used to have a t-shirt that said, friends don't let friends vote Democrat. And now I go to protests just to talk about that change because people are listening and it gives them hope and we were them and now we're us. All right, we're going to leave it there. If you like my political blathering on this show, you should hear me go off on Blabbermouth, the Strangers Week in Review podcast, out every Wednesday, hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eli Sanders. If you are not yet a Magnum Savage Lovecast subscriber, become one today. Just go to savagelovecast.com and subscribe for one month or six months or a year. You'll get more guests, more Q&As, no ads, just imagine. And you can also give the Magnum as a sneaky, nasty, occasionally passive-aggressive little gift or a genuine, honest, maternal gift at savagelovecast.com. The deadline is right around the corner to submit your film for my Dirty Little Film Festival, Hump. You have a chance to win part of $20,000 in cash prizes. Your films can be hardcore, softcore, live action, animated, kinky, vanilla, gay, lesbian, trans, straight. All sexual orientations and gender expressions are welcome at Hump. The deadline to submit your film is September 13th. Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out more. All right, 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. A big thank you to Kara Dunkley. Check out her paper in the Journal of Sex Research. It's called Pain as Pleasure, a Theoretical Perspective. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risky and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.